From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Record heat and record drought puts the California dream in jeopardy. The assumption has always been that we can live wherever we want and we'll bring the water to where the people are. I think that can't continue. I think we're going to have to have some serious conversations about the kinds of development we want, whether it makes sense to grow certain kinds of crops in an incredibly arid environment. Also, a science historian suggests that the culture of science is partly responsible for keeping us from taking timely and decisive action on global warming. There's two metaphors that lots of people are familiar with. One is crying wolf. And the other is fiddling while Rome burns. Scientists have been very, very afraid of crying wolf. And the consequence of that is that we've all been fiddling while Rome burns. Or maybe I should say we've been fiddling while Greenland melts. Metaphors and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Typhoons, tornadoes, massive wildfires, searing drought. These days, weather extremes seem more frequent and intense, and scientists who study global warming have predicted their upswing. And as Living on Earth's Emmett Fitzgerald reports, this year is yet another for the record books. June 2014 was the hottest June since records began in 1880. That's according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, where Jake Crouch is a climate scientist. May of 2014, the previous month was also record warm, so we've now had two consecutive record warm months back-to-back. So it's not necessarily surprising that we continue to be in this very warm pattern across the globe. The high temperatures have been felt on every continent, but not everywhere. In North America, the East Coast has actually had a relatively cool start to 2014. But the West is sweltering. The West Coast has been record warm. California's had their warmest year to date so far. That has led to increasing problems with drought, uh, wildfire problems, water resource issues. Crouch says it's no coincidence that Washington State and Northwest Canada are experiencing some of the largest wildfires in history. You know, those warm temperatures that have been experienced in that part of the country and that part of the globe has led to conditions which are favorable for these large wildfires. He says that Southern California is hoping for the weather pattern known as El Nino, which tends to bring storms and increased rainfall. The Climate Prediction Center has the chance of El Nino occurring at 80%. But Kevin Trenberth of the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Colorado says that the intensity of this year's El Nino remains uncertain. At one point, this looked very much like the 1997-98 El Nino event, which is the biggest on record. Now it has certainly backed off from that. The forecasts are certainly still that we will have an El Nino event, but maybe it'll be a little more modest. Any rain would bring relief to the parched western landscape. But Trenberth says El Nino could bring problems as well. The risk if we do have those conditions is that we might have too much of a good thing. You know, we go from drought to flooding and uh, coastal erosion and high sea levels along the coast and houses toppling into the ocean and things like that. Either way, the rains are still a ways off. October through December is normally when the El Nino really takes off, and that's when it has its biggest effects around December through February of the, uh, this will be 2015. Trenberth thinks the odds are that El Nino will prevent the California drought from dragging on into 2015. In addition to storms, El Nino can come with warmer temperatures across the globe, meaning that 2014 is likely to break a few more records before it's done. It's quite possible that 2014 will end up being the warmest year on record. 
at least until 2015. For Living on Earth, I'm Emmett Fitzgerald. So come December, there may be relief for California's record-breaking drought, but for now, it's about as bad as anyone can remember. Peter Glick is president of the Pacific Institute in Oakland, California, and a freshwater expert. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about agriculture. California puts a lot of food on our tables here in America. Um, What's been the impact so far of the drought on the agricultural sector, and, and where are things heading? So 80% of the water that Californians consume goes to the agricultural sector, and the Central Valley is a fantastic place to grow food. We, we grow a lot of the nation's fruits and vegetables. The overall current estimate is that impact to the agricultural community will be perhaps a few billion dollars this year and maybe a few tens of thousands of jobs, which is in some senses a big impact, but uh, it's a $40 billion ag economy out of a $2 trillion statewide economy. How are the farmers coping exactly with the shortages? What we do when we don't have surface water in California is we overpump groundwater. And so a lot of the uh, farmers in the Central Valley this year are looking to groundwater to make up surface water shortfalls. One of the reasons the impacts may not be too bad this year economically is precisely because we're overdrafting groundwater. We're looking at that groundwater pool as a way to make up some of these surface water shortages. And we can do that in the short run. But that's not sustainable in the long run. Groundwater levels are dropping. And uh, when groundwater levels drop, we see decreases in flows in some of our streams that are also dependent on groundwater flows in the dry part of the year. And the reality, of course, is that not every farmer can pump groundwater. Uh, Only those who can really afford to drill deeper and deeper, more and more expensive wells, have that as an option. And some farmers will benefit and some farmers will lose. I understand that there's actually been drops in the level of the soil in the Central Valley. Well, interestingly, this has been a problem for decades. You know, 50 or 60 years ago, when groundwater was overpumped, we saw very, very significant subsidence on the order of tens or even more feet of subsidence. Uh, There's some remarkable old photographs from the Central Valley uh, years and years ago showing how far land levels have dropped. We solved that problem in the 70s and 80s and 90s with deliveries of surface water and groundwater overdraft decreased, but it's increasing again. And we are seeing subsidence on the order of tens of feet and potentially more if the drought continues. Now, in your view, uh, Peter Glick, what crops does it make sense to grow in California given the, the tight water situation, the perennial tight water situation, and which ones maybe shouldn't be grown there? Crop decisions are a complicated thing. It's not just how much water is available. But in bad droughts, what we see is farmers shifting from crops that they can fallow for a year. They may let field crops go for a year, but they don't want to let their trees dry up and die. And so during a drought, we see farmers protecting trees, investments in orchards and nut fruits and nut crops. Even if they can't give them their full amount of water, they don't want those trees to die. Those are a, a decade-long investment. And so what we see is less planting of cotton and wheat, less planting of rice, less planting of alfalfa, and protection of some of these higher-valued fruits and nut crops. California is naturally actually a pretty dry place. There are massive water projects to bring water there from from other places. How do we come to have so much human settlement and, and agriculture in the Golden State, given the sort of intrinsic lack of water for California? California is a complicated place. You know, we have a lot of water in the north and a lot of water in the mountains. The population has settled in the coasts and in the south where there's less water. And because of that, we've built a massive infrastructure. Uh, We've built 
systems to store water in the wet season so we can use it in the dry seasons and aqueducts so we can move water from the north and the mountains to the south and the central valley and the coasts where we want it. And our development patterns have been such that the assumption has always been that we can live wherever we want and we'll bring the water to where the people are. I think that can't continue. I think we're going to have to have some serious conversations about the kinds of development we want and permit in the future. We're going to have to have serious conversations about whether it makes sense to grow certain kinds of crops in an incredibly arid environment. I think we'll continue to have a, a strong agricultural economy. We'll continue to have big populations in dry areas, but we're going to have to seriously reconsider the systems that we put in place and manage to satisfy those demands. We've talked a lot about agriculture. What about the built environment, residential and, and commercial water use? How could we cut down on that? About 20% of the water that Californians use goes to our homes and our industry and our commercial establishments. We've made a lot of progress, as we have in the agricultural sector, in improving efficiency in those water uses. But there's still lots of inefficient water uses in our urban centers. And we still use a tremendous amount of water for outdoor landscaping. We pretend as though we have an old English climate and can have English-style lawns, but we're in an arid environment, and we need to get rid of frankly, inefficient lawns and inefficient gardens. I got rid of all the lawn in my house, um, and I still have a beautiful garden, and my water uses half the state per capita average of the average person in California. And even I could save more water. And I gather you're growing more than crabgrass? Oh, no, we're not growing any crabgrass. Crabgrass is a terrible user of water, <laughs> and it's ugly. Yes. No, we, have a, we have a beautiful garden. We have flowers. We have native plants. Uh, we have blueberries and strawberries, and, and yet... Our water use is half the state average. What if the phone rang? It's uh, Governor Jerry Brown. He says, uh, Peter Glick, you are now water czar for the state of California. What are the three or four things you'd do if you had that kind of power? So the solutions to our water problems are not the solutions that we looked at in the 20th century. We're, we're running into peak water limits. There is no more untapped, unallocated water in the state. And, and the reality is we've given away far more water than nature naturally provides. So our options are fairly limited, but we do have options. And the key things that we need to be doing now are looking at the potential for more efficient use in our cities and more efficient use on our farms. There's a lot more that we could do on conservation and efficiency. But there are also a couple of new supply options that we really ought to be considering seriously. We ought to be exploring and expanding the use of treated wastewater. We use potable water to flush our toilets and to water our lawns, not just for drinking. And yet there is very high quality wastewater available. We collect a lot of wastewater, we treat it to a very high standard, and typically we throw it away. Let's put that supply of water to use. And similarly, we ought to be expanding our efforts to capture and use stormwater. Uh, there's a lot of potential for wastewater reuse, stormwater capture and reuse as new supply options, and improvements in conservation and efficiency. And those four options alone could produce a tremendous amount of new water for the state of California. Uh, and that's where we ought to be going now. Now, what do you think the American West is going to look like in 50 years, given what we're seeing now with drought increasing? Well, especially with climate change, I think we're going to see higher and higher temperatures. We're going to see more extreme events in the western U.S. Uh, the climate models suggest, unfortunately, that the southwest is going to get drier, not wetter, which is the opposite of what we would like if we had any choice in the matter. 
I think there will be fundamental changes in agriculture. I think we're not going to be able to afford to spend as much water in the West on agriculture as we currently do. And potentially, I think we're going to see the Midwest and the Northeast begin to advertise, hey, come back home. There's not as much water in the Southwest, and it's hotter and hotter in the Southwest, and our climate is increasingly attractive. And and that's going to be a turnaround from the old days when the Southwest advertised and drew people from the Midwest and from the North because of their more attractive climate. Goodbye, go West, young man, huh? <laughs> I think so. I think we're going to see more and more of that. Well, what, a fifth of the world's uh, fresh surface water is in the Great Lakes. We're already seeing conversations from some communities in the Midwest that perhaps they can advertise that their their water availability and their water quality and their reliability as a way to draw industry and residents back to the region. So far, our discussion is really just kind of focused on people and, and our needs from water. What about the rest of the natural world? We know that we've taken far too much water out of the environment. Uh, fisheries are collapsing, ecosystems are collapsing. There have been more and more efforts on the legal front and on the educational front and on the policy front to try and restore ecosystem health and restore some commitments of water for the environment. But during a drought, you know, we measure impacts on farmers, we measure impacts on industry. We're not really good at measuring impacts on fisheries and ecosystems, and yet some of the worst impacts historically have been, for example, on the salmon fisheries and the salmon runs in the state of California during drought. We had better not give up on the environment during droughts in order to restore a little more alfalfa production or cotton production in the Central Valley or to save our lawns and our cities. Uh, I think that would be a big mistake. Peter Glick is president of the Pacific Institute. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Well, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Coming up, drilling down to find what's tainting well water in Pennsylvania's gas and coal country. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Hydraulic fracturing to extract natural gas from formations like the Marcellus Shale under much of West Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania has brought a rise in complaints of contaminated well water. And common sense would say there's a link. Sometimes it is clear that fracking for gas has polluted nearby wells, but as scientists trace the chemical fingerprints in contaminated wells in Pennsylvania, evidence points to more complex causes for some bad water, including the legacy of coal mining. Reed Frazier from the public radio program The Allegheny Front reports. Every Monday, John Fair drives his pickup truck a few miles to the White Oak Springs Presbyterian Church. It's on a quiet country road about an hour north of Pittsburgh in Butler County. He heaves a few cardboard boxes into the back of his truck. The boxes are loaded with gallon jugs of spring water. This is his drinking water for the week. You've heard of a food drive? This is a water drive. It was organized a couple of years ago after neighbors in Fair's community, called the Woodlands, say their water quality deteriorated. They blamed nearby drilling rigs for the water problems. Fair says he drilled a water well three years ago at his home. The water was perfect, he said. Then it started smelling bad, like rotten eggs, and it looked like mud. And I say, yeah, you can't drink it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, just keep doing what you do. Do your wash and, you know, take your shower and do your dishes. That's about all you can do. You can't use it for drinking or anything, you know. Three years later, he gets all his drinking water from the water drive. 
At his home, Fair turns on the water in his kitchen sink. You want to taste it? I'll taste it. Ooh. Ooh. Tastes like it was like a rusty chain in the cup for... Ooh. Tastes like rust. Is that, is, that, is that the way water's supposed to be? Probably not. The company drilling the nearby gas wells, Rex Energy, initially provided Fair and his neighbors with drinking water. But that ended in 2012, when the state said gas activities were not the cause of the water problems. The state's Department of Environmental Protection found water had high levels of iron and manganese before drilling began. And the EPA agreed. Some in the woodlands say they've had problems with their well water in the past, that it smelled bad, or that after rainstorms it became dirty. But they say it got worse when drilling commenced, and some of them, including Fair, are suing Rex because of it. What went wrong with the water? John Stoltz is a microbiologist at Duquesne University who's trying to answer that question. He's looked at the same data the DEP has. And we see that, you know, a lot of the well data that we have or the the wells are impacted by mine drainage. Mine drainage, not brine from gas drilling or chemicals used in fracking. The area does have abandoned coal mines nearby, so maybe mine water has been in the water wells all along? From the interviews and tests he's done, Stoltz thinks the water got worse around the time drilling began. A good number of people no longer have potable water. It seems to coincide with when the drilling commenced and went, went you know, full bore, so to speak. With funding from the Heinz Endowments and the Colcom Foundation, Stoltz is trying to piece together an answer. He says it's a complicated picture underground. If we were pristine, no one had ever drilled a well in Pennsylvania. No one had ever mined a mine in Pennsylvania. And they started drilling this. It would be a lot easier. But, you know, we have close to a million wells that have been drilled prior to all this activity. So that's a, lot of, that's a lot of holes in the ground. And Stoltz thinks maybe one hole in the ground might have influenced another. But Rex Energy disputes this interpretation. The company didn't return phone calls for the story, but in the past has stood by the DEP's findings that its activities had nothing to do with water problems in the community. Water contamination concerns have followed the boom in the state's Marcellus Shale gas fields since it began. Gas activities damaged groundwater in more than 160 cases across the state, according to DEP records obtained by the Times-Tribune of Scranton. And last month, a drilling rig north of Pittsburgh punched through an abandoned coal mine, forcing mine drainage into a nearby stream and impacting groundwater in nearby homes. But these incidents represent a minority of cases in a state with more than 8,000 Marcellus Shale gas wells. And the industry points out that the state has steadily improved its construction standards for drilling. Still, few hard numbers exist on how safe shale gas drilling has been for groundwater. Sue Brantley is a geochemist at Penn State who's trying to change that. She's been putting together groundwater tests from across the Marcellus region, like one that appeared on her screen from northeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, Here's barium. This is one of the the signatures for uh, Marcellus. Her project, called the Shale Network, is funded by the National Science Foundation and has over one million of these data points so far. But she wants more. Well, the data that, that we're really interested in right now is uh, data that was collected before drilling by uh, gas companies. Before they drill a well, gas companies typically test nearby groundwater. This can help shield them from contamination claims. 
These results are locked away, though, because legally they're the private property of the homeowner, like a patient's medical records. There's another hurdle for scientists like Brantley, the legal system. In cases of alleged groundwater contamination, landowners will often sue a drilling company. Very often, the companies will will settle with people if they'll sign a non-disclosure agreement, and then the data doesn't come out. And that's just really, it's a big loss. Brantley might have found a workaround. Gas companies send their results to the DEP. Her lab is working with the DEP to take identifying information like names and addresses out of these tests and put them into their database. A lot of these results have to be hand-entered into the computer. Slowly, a picture is starting to emerge. You know, we in our database have not found a lot of incidents of contamination due to the shale gas industry. There are some incidents for sure, but we haven't found a lot of them. Another problem for scientists is just nature itself. Fred Baldessari is a former DEP geologist. He's been studying underground methane migration. In a study he did with help from gas companies, he found that gas that looked like it was from the Marcellus Shale was actually hanging out in rocks closer to the surface. He thinks this has tricked other researchers into thinking gas found in shallow parts of the ground was the result of drilling or fracking in the Marcellus. Some researchers were suggesting that when you see that deep gas, it must be from the Marcellus up in the groundwater system. And we're saying... That's not an accurate statement. The confusing nature of studying the underground doesn't obscure Baldessari's overall assessment that there should be a way to do fracking without contaminating groundwater and that the industry's practices now are better and safer than they were five years ago. But exactly how safe is it now? To find that out, scientists say, more study is needed. Reed Frazier reports for the public radio program The Allegheny Front. There's much debate about how much more fossil fuel infrastructure is necessary, given concerns about global warming. The proposed Keystone XL pipeline to carry tar sands oil from Canada to the U.S. Gulf Coast is perhaps the most controversial. But there are other conflicts, and on July 21st, South Portland, Maine, passed an ordinance to effectively ban an existing pipeline from carrying Canadian tar sands crude. And there are fierce objections to the proposed expansion of a natural gas pipeline from Pennsylvania to Massachusetts that would cost consumers as much as $3 billion. A key opponent is Shanna Cleveland. She's a senior attorney with the Conservation Law Foundation in Boston, who joins us now in the studio. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. How much does the region need this pipeline to cope with its energy needs? I'm so glad you asked that. That's the key question here is whether or not a pipeline of this size and nature is needed. And from our perspective, that's exactly the question that the New England governors should have asked and gotten a better answer to before deciding that they were going to invest customer money into a pipeline like this. From our analysis, the incremental expansions of existing natural gas pipeline, as well as the current supplies of liquefied natural gas that we have on the system, would be plenty to make up the shortfalls that we've been seeing in the winter months and reduce those price spikes that folks have been concerned about. Now, I understand that the New England governors hired a consulting firm, Black & Veatch, to study all this. What did they find, and how do you think it forms this discussion? Well, I think the most important conclusion that Black & Veatch reached was that under a low-demand scenario, that is, under a scenario where we reduce our consumption of natural gas, there is no need for new infrastructure. 
So you would think that after hearing that conclusion, the New England governors would have wondered, well, how much would it cost to get to that low demand scenario? But in fact, they did not ask Black and Veatch to follow up on that at all and instead continued to pursue the question of how much it would cost and how big a pipeline could be built. Explain to me what is it the New England governors uh, agreed to do regarding this pipeline? Well, about a year and a half ago, the New England governors came together and said they wanted to develop a regional energy infrastructure initiative. And one piece of that initiative was supporting the building of more natural gas pipelines. And what they're proposing is something that's never been proposed in the history of the United States. And that is for electric customers to subsidize the costs of a natural gas pipeline. So the electric customers would be paying for the construction of this pipeline, even though it's really the power generators who need the natural gas that would be transported along this pipeline. If instead of spending 2 or $3 billion for a pipeline, New England invested that in renewable energy, what would be the biggest bang for the buck? Well, the biggest bang for the buck is always energy efficiency. So one of the things that we could do is invest that money into natural gas energy efficiency programs. But there's a lot of other things we could do without spending any money at all, and that includes market reforms. Right now, the markets for natural gas and electricity don't operate on the same time frame and aren't expected to be coordinated in the way that they need to be. And we believe that with a combination of changes to the market, better use of existing supply, and more energy efficiency, we can meet the challenge that we face. Explain to me what the disconnect is in the market between electricity and natural gas. Well, so natural gas is contracted for in two different ways. One way is to purchase what's called a firm transportation contract. Now, the folks who heat with natural gas and the companies that supply them, the local distribution companies such as Instar and National Grid, pay a bit of a premium to make sure that gas is always going to be delivered to you when you need it. But the power generators primarily purchase it through what are known as interruptible contracts. And that means whenever there is high capacity on the system, they're subject to interruption. So they end up being subject to the spot market prices in the wintertime when we're heating with natural gas at the same time that we're using it for electricity. One of the simplest ways to change the markets so that Uh, the electricity market would respond properly to the gas markets would be to require the power generators to buy firm transportation contracts. But that's not something that's on the table right now. In the view of the Conservation Law Foundation, your organization, how long should we keep using natural gas? Well, we're certainly using more natural gas now as we retire the coal and oil plants that were beyond their useful lives. And from our perspective, that's actually an improvement because the criteria pollutants that are put out by coal and oil plants, such as sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide, one of the ones that form smog, are very detrimental to public health. So in the short term, natural gas is providing some public health benefits. But in the long term, natural gas simply doesn't cut down on our GHG emissions enough. What did the Black and Veatch study say about emissions of things such as methane and carbon dioxide? 
Well, the Black and Veatch study didn't actually analyze the greenhouse gas emissions impacts of this proposed pipeline. We know, based on recent studies, that not only do the pipelines leak and create a fair amount of methane that gets released into the atmosphere, but that there is significant concern about leaks and flaring at the wellhead. And there are significant climate change impacts from extracting and transporting the gas. It's been suggested that one of the unspoken motivations for putting this pipeline is to enable the prospect of exports of natural gas. What do you hear along these lines? Well, I have heard a lot about that. And it's interesting because the supposed need that was posited in the Black and Veatch study was around 600,000 million cubic feet a day. And the proposed pipeline dwarfs that. It is about 2.2 billion cubic feet a day that they are considering building the pipeline for. So there is quite a potential for a lot of this natural gas to end up on the export market. How do residents in the region feel about uh, a new natural gas pipeline? Well, I can tell you that the folks who live in the areas that this pipeline is proposed to go through are very concerned. And we've seen an unprecedented level of engagement by individuals and residents, not only on the issue of the pipeline and its proposed route itself, but also on energy policy and the need to really bring this conversation about what our energy future looks like into the public debate and into the public eye. Shanna Cleveland is a senior attorney with the Conservation Law Foundation in Boston. Thanks so much for taking the time to come by. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. We contacted the pipeline company, Kinder Morgan. They declined to speak with us, referring us only to their website. There's a link at LOE.org. Time now to check in with Peter Dykstra, the publisher of DailyClimate.org and Environmental Health News, that's EHN.org, to see what caught his attention this week beyond the headlines. He's on the line as usual from Conyers, Georgia. Hi, Peter. What's going on? Well, hi, Steve. Let's start with the weirdest drought-related crime story to come along in quite a while. Anybody who's ever seen a gangster movie or a Sopranos episode knows what protection money is. I believe the legal term is extortion. Pay me every week and bad things won't happen to you. Right, but there's a new twist on the protection racket in drought-stricken northern India, where armed bandits are demanding water deliveries from local villages, according to the Associated Press. The bandits' leaders have told local villagers to haul buckets of water to the bandits' territory or risk being shot dead. And the street cred for these particular bandits is so strong that already 28 small villages are complying, according to the AP. Your water or your life? What a sad story. What about something more upbeat, Peter? Well, Steve, this next story is what makes science and environmental journalism fun. By now, everybody knows that honeybees and other pollinators are in trouble. There are a variety of suspects, and that if pollinators go down, so does a big chunk of our food supply. But one place has turned out to be a honeybee haven with almost none of the problems the rest of the world is freaking out over. Oh, and that place would be? That place would be Newfoundland, the rugged Canadian island that sticks out into the North Atlantic. It's home to some of the healthiest honeybee colonies on Earth, and the possible reasons why are many. One of them, uh, the varroa mites and the other parasites that affect bees, are non-existent in Newfoundland. Uh, Also, there's no large-scale mega farming, so there's no large-scale use of the pesticides blamed elsewhere for bee deaths. You know, Newfoundland's called the rock for a reason, and you're more likely to find moss than grassy, pesticide-treated lawns there. 
And finally, the, the places where things like cranberries and blueberries are farmed commercially in Newfoundland, there are strict controls and inspections for any imported bees that are used to pollinate them. Yeah, and if we can study the place that's free of pollinator problems, it'll then help us learn about how to fix the pollinator problems elsewhere. Exactly. So the beekeepers of Newfoundland may be doing a big service to beekeepers and farmers everywhere. And uh, what's the buzz from the Annals of History this week? Uh, Well, this week is our best opportunity to wish a happy birthday to smog. Uh, Well, at least the variety of smog that's closely associated with Los Angeles, because 71 years ago this week, L.A. had its first major smog attack. An eye-stinging cloud descended on the city in 1943. But uh, that wasn't the first air pollution crisis in the city. I I think London had problems going back to the 1800s. Uh, Yeah, you're absolutely right. But this one was just not the first smog attack on L.A. It was the first one anywhere that was primarily caused by car exhausts and not by coal stoves or coal-burning factories. It, It took L.A. several years to figure this out. So first they tried shutting down factories, and all they saw was that the smog got worse. And being 1943, the middle of World War II, some folks even thought that the smog was actually a poison gas attack from Japan. By the 50s, a Caltech scientist had figured out the ground-level ozone problem we now know as smog. By the 1960s, Johnny Carson was telling smog jokes on The Tonight Show. By the 1980s, air pollution laws were just starting to have some impact. And there's still a problem in L.A. today with smog, but Southern California has been pretty aggressive in tackling it all. Peter Dykstra is the publisher of Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Thanks so much, Peter. Talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Steve. Coming up, a science historian turned novelist holds up a mirror to our dithering about global warming. That's ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A slim paperback novel called The Collapse of Western Civilization, A View from the Future, landed in our office the other day. Its cover art caught our attention. Under a lowering sky, a red desert stretches to the horizon and a bottle with a message sticks out of the sand. Its authors are two science historians, Naomi Oreskes of Harvard and Eric Conway of Caltech. Their 2010 nonfiction volume, Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming was a bestseller. This latest book switches to science fiction. It's 2393. An historian living in the Second People's Republic of China reflects on how science, democracy, and the free market all failed to keep global warming from upending society and nearly driving humans extinct. Naomi Oreskes joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So why does a historian write fiction? Well, Eric and I were struggling with some way to convey something important that we felt we had come to understand. People really weren't getting why climate change really mattered. 
And lots of people had the impression that climate change was something that was just about polar bears. So we wanted to write something that would convey why this is not just an issue about polar bears. This is an issue about us, about our way of life, and also about our institutions, about our economic and political and democratic institutions. Talk to me a little bit about how you decided what effects of climate disruption that you included in here in your description and how likely those are. This is a work of fiction because it's imaginary, because it takes place in the future. But everything that happens in the book up until 2013 has actually already happened. So we didn't have to make up any of the parts of the story that take place up until the present. And everything that happens beyond 2013 is based on projecting outward the scientific evidence that already exists. So we already have scientific evidence that hurricanes are possibly becoming more intense. We already have very strong scientific evidence for sea level rise and the destabilization of the West Antarctic ice sheet. We already have scientific evidence for the role of climate change, things like droughts and crop failure. So we simply took all of the scientific information, both of things that have happened already or things that are very plausibly on the horizon. And then we wove a story around imagining that those things actually happen. So what you're saying is, uh, if you see the boulder rolling down the hill, you don't have to wait to know that it's going to wind up someplace towards the bottom. Exactly. That's exactly right. And we also wanted to say that, although we don't want to disparage the work that we ourselves have done, it didn't take a lot of imagination to imagine what would happen when that boulder hit the bottom, especially if there were a town sitting at the bottom of the hill. One of the key parts of your novel is uh, the notion that democracy fails and fails miserably. Why did you pick that theme? Well, this really fell out from our book, Merchants of Doubt. So in Merchants of Doubt, we told the story about a group of men who fought the scientific evidence of climate change because they were afraid of its implications. That is to say, would lead to the undermining of democratic systems and become a kind of invitation for authoritarian governments to take control of the marketplace, of the relocation of people, and other things like that. And so we felt that the profound irony of the story was that by denying the reality, they actually increased the likelihood that disruptive climate change would lead to the very outcomes that they most dreaded. So the one civilization that comes out comparatively well in your novel is China. Now, of course, China is, in some respects, the oldest civilization on the planet, you know, continuously operating for the last 5,000 or so years. But why did you pick China? Well, there were two reasons. The first is the one you suggested, that China is the oldest continuously existing civilization on Earth. So just from a simple, logical, practical point of view, it seemed most plausible that China would continue even if other civilizations did not. But we also wanted to bring out this ironic point that if things really start to go bad, it's going to be the authoritarian countries that are more in a position to take control of the economy and relocate people, deal with food shortages and food riots. So we wanted to bring out that point that if you really care about democracy, you ought to be doing everything in your power to stop climate change because disruptive climate change will not be friendly to liberal democracies. What of what China is doing today supports your thesis here? Well, China is very complicated, and lots of people like to bash China because there's this, you know, huge pollution problem in China. 
and just amazing, amazing emissions increases in the last 10 years that very few people anticipated. So it's very easy to look at China and to blame them and to say, well, why should we take action on climate change when their emissions growths are so rapid? But at the same time, China has actually made massive investments in solar energy, in um, fourth generation nuclear power. There's a lot of talk in China about a carbon tax. So China is at this complicated country where both good and bad things are happening at the same time. So in the optimistic scenario, the good side of what's happening in China, the carbon tax, the massive investment in solar power, those would be the points that prevail. We, we don't really take a position on whether that's what happens. We simply speculate that the authoritarian aspects of Chinese culture become resurgent again, and those aspects then come to the fore as China remobilizes and moves hundreds of millions of people to higher, safer ground. Part of your book is really tough on the scientific method, um, the drive for scientists to be absolutely sure that something is right. Why do you talk about that? Well, one of the issues that's come up a lot in the last few years surrounding the whole issue of climate change is the question of scientific communication. And a lot of scientists have thought that this was simply a problem of people not really understanding the science. And Eric Conway and I have argued that that's not really true, that a lot of the resistance to climate change has to do with the political and economic issues that are at stake. But there is one element of it we think that is about scientists and scientific communication. And that's the fact that scientists hold themselves to an extremely high bar before they're willing to say that they know something is true. So an example that many people have heard about has to do with hurricanes. We have tremendous amounts of evidence that extreme weather events are getting more extreme. And we know that when the ocean warms up, you have more energy to drive hurricanes. So there's lots of good reasons to link climate change to hurricanes and to say that as the world warms, we expect hurricanes to become either more frequent or more intense. And yet the scientific community has been reluctant to make that link because it hasn't hit this high level of confidence, which is the so-called 95% confidence limit. So by setting this, the standard so extremely high, scientists sort of protect themselves against a certain kind of error, the error of thinking something's true that maybe isn't. But they put all of us at risk to a different kind of error, which is the error of doing nothing, the error of thinking we're not sure about something that's actually taking place. So what you're saying is that science doesn't much like the precautionary principle, doesn't much like the majority of evidence, wants the uh, overwhelming uh, amount of evidence. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I don't really like to talk about the precautionary principle in terms of climate change, because we're way past the point of precaution. It, I mean, precaution would have been doing something about this 20 years ago. I guess the way I like to think about it is there's two metaphors that lots of people are familiar with. One is crying wolf and the other is fiddling while Rome burns. Scientists have been very, very afraid of crying wolf. And the consequence of that is that we've all been fiddling while Rome burns. Or maybe I should say we've been fiddling while Greenland melts. Naomi, what about the trend in science to have scientists be highly specialized? Yes, the specialization of science is a really important part of this problem, and it's something we talk about in the book. So climate change is a very complicated issue in which the physical, the biological, the economic, and the political aspects of our world all come together. But climate change as an issue has mostly been understood by scientists as a question of the physical environment, the atmosphere, and to some extent the ocean and the ice sheets. 
And scientists are very, very specialized. So even within the physical science, you have people who specialize just in ice. And even within ice, you have people who specialize just in ice cores or just in ice modeling or, you know, just in the bubbles inside the ice. And this highly specialized aspect of science is partly why science is powerful. But at the same time, it makes it hard for scientists to connect the dots. On Twitter, a bunch of us have started using the hashtag connect the dots because we're trying to make the point that it's true no one hurricane, no one storm, no one flood proves that we have climate change. But the collection of all of these things, all of the different dots, is making a very, very clear picture. And one of the strange things that Eric Conway and I feel as historians is that in a weird way, we found ourselves in this position of connecting the dots and we found ourselves talking about things and saying things that we felt confident were true, things we felt confident were supported by the scientific evidence, and yet which not that many scientists were actually talking about. Economics is called the dismal science by some. And, uh, and in your book, uh, economists, well, they don't come out terribly well. <laughs> Well, of course, nobody really comes out terribly well in the book. So, you know, we're equal opportunity historians in that respect. But the principal point we try to bring attention to in the book is not so much economics as a discipline, but economics as an ideology, the ideology that we call free market fundamentalism. And this has been an important theme for Eric and I since we first started working on this issue, which is nearly 10 years ago, that many of the people who are in denial about the reality of climate change have a kind of faith that the market will somehow do its magic and that this problem will somehow be miraculously solved by the invisible hand of the marketplace, moving all the pieces into place and coming up with some kind of solution. We've known about the reality of climate change for a long time now, and we've been watching the effects of climate change for at least 10, 15 years now. To think that the market on its own will somehow miraculously solve this problem is, in my opinion, just wishful thinking. And so we're trying to bring attention to the fact that while there are many good things about market-based economies, we face a really significant problem that's not going to be solved by the free market on its own. It hasn't been solved by it to date, and there's no evidence to suggest that it will be solved. And so thinking about that wishful thinking, that kind of magical thinking, is really, really crucial to understanding how to break the logjam and figure out what we really need to do about this issue. To what extent are you saying that catastrophic climate disruption is a market failure? That's exactly what we're saying. And it's not just us. I mean, many economists have said this too. So in fairness to economists, it's not as if no one in the economics community recognizes this. Nick Stern, who's the former chief economist of the World Bank, uh, has said that global warming, climate change is the greatest market failure ever seen. And I think that's exactly right. Now, let's face it. Humans very often do things that aren't good for us uh, on an individual level, uh, you know, smoke cigarettes, uh, drink too much, knowing full and well that uh, it's likely to kill us ultimately. So with that in mind, what do you think are some potential solutions to the way that we are hurting ourselves by, you know, keeping our heads tucked in the sand about what's happening with the climate? Well, what you said is true, but it's also true that humans have great capacity to change, and particularly when they work together and have good leadership. So since you mentioned tobacco, and that's something that Eric Conway and I wrote about in our previous book, we know that in the case of tobacco, more than 75% of Americans smoked cigarettes back in the 1950s. Today, that number is down to only about 25%. Millions of lives have been saved in America and elsewhere around the world 
through tobacco control. So how did that happen? Well, it was a combination of two important things. One was people understanding the scientific evidence that tobacco smoking can kill you. And the other was leadership, leadership from people like the U.S. Surgeon General, who spoke to the American people about what the risks were. So this is why telling the truth about the science, being articulate about the science, fighting against disinformation about the science is so important. We, the American people, need to have good information in order to make good decisions. And we've been denied good information on climate change because there has been so much disinformation, misinformation, false equivalents. And we've also been lacking leadership for all kinds of reasons that I think the American people kind of get. Well, let's talk about leadership. A key point of your book is that uh, leaders really fail to act on a timely basis. What could we do now to change the scenario that you paint? Well, this is, of course, a tricky issue. Um, I feel like I've been waiting for a lot of years for a Nixon goes to China moment, but it hasn't happened yet. So when leadership fails, you know, when the top-down approach doesn't work, then you have to think about bottom-up. And I think that's why increasingly we're seeing signs of activism, especially among young people. So at my university, at Harvard, at MIT, at Stanford, all across the United States, students around the country are asking university leaders to think about their investments in the fossil fuel industry and to say that maybe the time has come where that's no longer an acceptable thing to do. So they are already starting to demand that their elders either fix it or get out of the way, right? (laughs) You're a historian. Where have we had that kind of fundamental change in human history? Well, many times. I mean, if you look at the history of the United States, the Civil War and the abolition of slavery is an extremely important example because slavery was a profound and tremendous evil, and we abolished it, but it took a civil war. And I don't think anybody wants to say that the Civil War was a good thing. The abolition of slavery was a good thing, but the Civil War was a huge human, political, and social tragedy. So the way I think about it as a historian is, can we please try to find a way to fix this problem short of having some kind of terrible outcome like the Civil War? The view of some is, is that you don't get radical changes in leadership and, uh, and behavior without revolution. Well, see, I don't agree with that, though. I mean, again, if we go back to tobacco, we have seen very, very significant social change over tobacco, and that didn't involve a revolution. That involved people working hard systematically on a lot of different levels. So we have models for social change that involve disruption. We have models for social change that involve progress without horrible disruption. So I think we have a choice here. And I think in a way, that's why Eric and I have written this book. We want to say to our readers, there is a choice here. And the choice is in our hands, but time is running out. We can't sit on our hands indefinitely and expect this to come out okay. Naomi Oreskes is co-author of the new novel, The Collapse of Western Civilization, along with Eric Conway. She teaches at Harvard University. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Professor. Thank you. It's been really great speaking with you. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Lauren Hinkle, Jake Lucas, Abby Nighthill, Jennifer Marquis, and Olivia Powers all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And please like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International